This is 15-Minute History, a podcast for educators, students, and history buffs featuring the minds and talents of the University of Texas at Austin. 15-Minute History is a partnership of Not Even Past and Hemispheres in the College of Liberal Arts at UT Austin. Welcome back. I'm your host, Christopher Rose, with the Center for Middle Eastern Studies, part of Hemispheres, and our guest in the studio today is Keeley Sutton, a doctoral candidate in the Department of Asian Studies here at the University of Texas, where she specializes in Malayalam religious populations and the Muslim folk literatures of the state of Kerala in southern India. Keeley's going to be talking to us today about the Buddha and his time. Welcome to the studio. Thank you very much. What is Buddhism? Well, that's kind of difficult because some people say that it's uh, a religion or a religious tradition. Um, Other people would maybe say it's more of a philosophy or a practice, something you practice more than something you believe, which is kind of where there's a disconnect between maybe East and West. When we talk about the development of Buddhism, what time period are we looking at, historically speaking? Well, the dates of uh, the historical Buddha, Siddhartha Gautama, um, has been shifted around a bit over the years. I think now scholars are looking at 470, 480 BCE as an approximation of when he was born. And he lived for 80 years, according to his biographies and some of the canons. Um, So that puts him at about 400 BCE passing away. Now, prior to this, they had dates a little bit earlier in the 500s kind of range, but it's been moved up some. What was going on in northeastern India at the time? I believe Karen Armstrong describes this period as the axial age. There was a lot of religious fervor, new movements springing up. So what was going on that was sort of contributing to that? Well, around that time period, you have some shifts in Brahmanical thought. So Brahmanism is how early religion in India was talked about, the name given to it. And that has some of the aspects of what still exist in Hinduism today, one of which is the caste system, where you have Brahmins, Kshatriyas, Vaishyas, and Shudras. It's a four-part caste system. So the Brahmins were the priests. Kshatriyas were the rulers or kings. Vaishyas as the merchants or the pastoralists. They were herders. They herded cattle um, or they grew crops. And then the Shudras who were the servants and they were um, the bottom and they weren't allowed access to the ritual system. So if you're Vaisha or a, a Kshatriya, you could have Brahmins perform sacrifices for you. And these sacrifices initially were for the normal kind of mundane things, long life, uh, riches, have a son. And um, in the old literature, which are the Vedas, you see concerns for perhaps being reborn into heaven even. So there wasn't an idea of uh, rebirth like you see later. But when you get more towards the Buddha, towards the Axial Age, one big thing was happening, which was kind of this urbanization was going on. So instead of having small kin groups, you have perhaps rulers who are ruling over several kin groups, the growth of cities. With the growth of cities, you had people who were more settled and not moving around as much. And maybe they had surpluses, surplus of food, surplus of money, and things like that. So people with surpluses have the ability to give it to people. And so at the same time, you have these shramana movements, which means ascetic or renouncing movements. This was happening within the Vedic kind of Brahmanical world as well. And at that time, that's when you start seeing concepts such as samsara, which is the wheel of birth and rebirth. 
So this idea of being reborn back into the world again. And the idea of karma, which originally actually meant action only in the ritual sphere. So when you talked about karma, you were talking about how the Brahmin priest sacrificed. It was their sacrificial actions. Instead, this took it on the new understanding of what you did in this world would affect how you were reborn. And then you start getting the idea, too, in the Upanishads, which are the later Vedic texts of moksha, right? The idea is you want to be reborn. That you want to be able to control how you're reborn. Control how you're being reborn and actually get out of the system. Release. Moksha means release or liberation. And so where does the Buddha fit into all of these developments? Well, he was within this whole sphere. So these ideas were probably floating around to a certain extent. The idea of samsara, the idea of karma. And there was also the idea of Brahman. Brahman is the unchanging and uh, highest reality that exists in and even beyond the world. Another concept that's related was that of Atman, which is the essence and true self of an individual. Um, It's perhaps loosely analogous to a soul. Now, in the Upanishadic texts, the big kind of aha moment was when you realize that Atman equals Brahman. So Brahman, not the priest Brahman, but Brahman, the reality, what things really are. So in the Upanishadic, in the Vedic, the Brahmanical sphere, the way to reach release was to realize that you are actually the ultimate Brahman. That is who you really are. Your Atman, yourself, is Brahman. Obviously, you and I would be released right now if it was just a you know, intellectual understanding. But we're talking about a really deep understanding that comes about after years of study and meditation. So that was key because Atman in this system, the Brahmanical system, Atman equals Brahman, right? Well, Buddha came in to this system, the Buddha Siddhartha Gautama, and what he ended up understanding was there is no self. This was a major shift from self being something that a self, a soul, your Atman, being Brahman, meaning that you have an eternal self, he said, no, there's no such thing as a self. So he was clearly reacting to this. Another way he reacted to it, of course, was he was very egalitarian. So instead of Brahmins being the people who were the, you know, the the conduit between the gods and the people, and also this rigid caste system where where you were born is where you were, he said, no, come one, come all, basically. Um, you know, women were eventually allowed into the system, and uh, it didn't really matter what your caste was as well. Let's talk a little bit about the Buddha's personal biography, sure. if we may. Who he was, where he was, what his station was at life, and how he came to a religious life. The biographies of the Buddha started being written a few hundred years after his death, I think. One of the most famous one is Ashvagosha's Buddha Charita, which just means a history of the Buddha, a story of the Buddha. And it's really interesting. So they say he was a prince. I think he said within some of the Pali canon that he was a kshatriya. He would tell people he was a kshatriya. He definitely was of a ruling family. And this particular story was already kind of infused with the mythology of the Buddha. So it has his mother, a lot of things happening that kind of point forward to his, what who would he become? Right. So his mother, for instance, had a vision of a white elephant entering her side. And then later the story says that she was on her way to her family's house to have 
the baby, which is customary. Um, and she stopped at this particular grove, and she had the Buddha without pain, standing up. The Buddha was born fully aware. He took seven steps, and he spoke. So that's what the Buddha Charita says. Um, it further goes on to talk about how he was, because of all these auspicious things that happened around him, he went and spoke to some wise men or Brahmins, and they said, well, your son will either be a universal king, or he will be a really wise sage, religious ascetic. He will renounce the world. Well, the king, his father, the king, didn't want him to become a renouncer. He wanted him to become a world king. Right. So the story says that he put him in a palace, and he made sure he saw no suffering, nothing bad. And he was kind of lavished with all the sensory delights that you could, you know, imagine. Eventually, he got married at age 29, and he had a son. But the gods had to intervene, according to this story. And one day when he was out in the city, sent certain things for him to see, one of which was a sick person, a dead person, an old person, and then finally um, an ascetic, a renouncer who was in saffron robes with a shaven head. And the point of all this was that when he saw the first three, he realized that you cannot escape certain kinds of suffering. You can't escape sickness, death, or old age. And these kind of tormented him. And then when he saw the monk, he had to ask, who is that? And when his charioteer told him, it kind of started this thought process, I think, in his head. And from that point on, he left the palace right. and began his religious journey. Right. What was his early, I don't know if ministry is the right word to use in terms of the Buddha, but clearly he attracted followers. Um, so what was the impact of his small religious cults during his lifetime, or as far as we can tell? Right. Well, we don't really have a lot of evidence from that time. I mean, we have the Pali Canon, which wasn't even written down until... Um, after his death. That's the earliest text, the Terigata, the Terigata, which are songs of the elders, the men and the women. Um, we know that, you know, as I said before, you had these uh, kind of other renouncing movements, right? So there was a lot of them going on, and you had Jainism going on as well. So, yeah, I don't know. I mean, you know that it was patronized, obviously. Right. But we don't know how much it was actually even seen as a separate movement on the ground. People probably patronized a lot of different traditions, you know. People would have the same kind of thing. They would come begging and, yeah. How did his thoughts and teachings evolve over his lifetime? Do we have a sense of how they matured? Um, what sort of messages he left behind? So the main kind of ideas are the Four Noble Truths, right? And you can kind of see it from the story, too. Um, again, that was written after his death, so... Right. It's all kind of encompassed very nicely. But so all life is suffering, first of all. And this was something that was understood already in the milieu, you know, of just Vedic thought anyway. And it was just how you kind of dealt with it that differed. But by suffering, it doesn't mean sharp shooting pain. It really maybe a better translation is uh, unsatisfactoriness. So in the Buddhist understanding, you know, when we're anxious about schoolwork or we're anxious about work or, you know, we've got the restless feeling or we're just a little sad, 
um, or we get something that we want and then we realize that maybe that's not what we really wanted or it's not enough. You get what you want, but then you realize you're happy for a day and then you're back to where you were. All this is kind of suffering. So that's the first tenet or the first noble truth. All life is suffering. The second noble truth is that suffering is caused by desire. So because we want things and want to own them and have them, that's what causes the suffering. The third noble truth is that there is a way to stop suffering. So he said, yeah, we can definitely stop it. It's not something that we have to live with. And the fourth noble truth is a noble eightfold path, which is his particular prescription, because this is set up like a doctor would do. He looks at the problem, he finds the root of it, he figures out whether or not it can be cured, and then he gives you the cure. So this is kind of the cure, is a noble eightfold path, yeah. So, Are there similarities between some of these concepts and those that we associate with Hinduism? You've got samsara, which is the wheel of life and death and rebirth. Um, You've got karma. Um, You have, instead of Atman, the Buddha said there's no self. In fact, one of our big fundamental problems is that we think that we exist, that we think that we have a soul, but we really don't. So that's diametrically opposed, of course, to Brahmanism. But interestingly enough, some people... So the way that Buddhism kind of dried up or left India is not totally clear. People kind of point to a lot of different reasons. But one of the things that scholars say is that after this kind of shramana movements of the Vedic world of Brahmanism, um, so you've got that going on with the Upanishadic understandings. But then you also have later these bhakti movements. Bhakti means devotion. These kind of bhakti movements start growing throughout India, spreading through India. And some people argue that Buddhism was kind of incorporated into some of these other movements, bhakti movements, or even the the kind of Vedic movements that are based on the Vedas. That's what I mean when I say Vedic. Right. So um, as a matter of fact, vegetarianism, which people think probably actually started with Jainism, which also started around the same time period as the Buddha, you know, which Buddhism kind of adopted, which then Hinduism adopted. Interesting. Yeah. In fact, Vishnu eventually kind of incorporated the Buddha as his ninth avatar. Interesting. So the 10 major avatars of Vishnu, which were developed later, took him as the ninth avatar. You mentioned the Buddha married and had a son. Yeah. Rahula, his name was, means a binding. Interesting. Yeah. Um, Was there any veneration of the family? No. So we don't really know what happened to the line of descendants after that? No, we sure don't. Interesting. At least as far as I know, of course, someone else may. But he kind of always said it's the teaching, you know. In fact, the idea is that this understanding has always existed. And there have been Buddhas before the Buddha. And there will be Buddhas after the Buddha. You know, Buddha means the awakened one, literally. Um, His given family name is Siddhartha Gautama. He was also known as like the Tathagata, which means a thus come one. Hmm. So there's various titles and things. But the Buddha is a title for someone who kind of comes to this understanding alone at a time when the world has forgotten it. And then he teaches it to other people. Yeah. So someone who comes after him, say you become enlightened, you'd be an arhant or an arhat in Pali. The languages differ just a little bit. But a Buddha is someone who specifically has no teacher, discovers it on his own and then teaches it. Interesting. So you mentioned that the Buddha uh, lived to be 80 years old. So um, is he considered to have 
died? Did he ascend? What 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 are the traditions surrounding the end of his earthly existence? Um, well, he is said to have died from food poisoning. Interesting. Right from pork. <laughs> A strong vegetarian message there, I suppose. Well.、Um, I don't know if it's the mess, the vegetarian, maybe, but it also maybe is kind of a mundane. Maybe it just kind of highlights the fact that he really was just a a man, you know, just a person, and he got it from begging. So they took whatever they would eat, whatever if they were given when they were begging. They couldn't beggars couldn't beggars can't be choosers, you know. Right. <laughs> so when he died. I think there's there's sayings about flowers showering and things like this, but he reached they call it pari nirvana, final nirvana. So you don't have to die to reach nirvana, but when you do die and you're released and you're not coming back, you reach pari nirvana. This is a concept that kind of I think confuses some people sometimes because they wonder if you know do you have to die to to reach this state. But、um, so yeah, he reached final nirvana, whereupon he's you know he's done, he's not coming back, kind of thing. And then he was cremated, and his remains and the bowl that was used to gather his remains were divided among these stupas, and stupas are、um, these burial. I wish we had video. You know these burial kind of domes. Domes, yeah, you've yeah. seen them,、yeah. and you circumambulate them and.、Um, Yeah, and they were divided among these these stupas. There's a pilgrimage route in northern India, if I'm not mistaken. Yes, there is. I don't. I'm not familiar with it, but I imagine it's his birth and his,、right. you know, his first sermon,、um, and then his death. And yeah, people go there and circumambulate, and they will donate. There's a wealth of inscriptional evidence. We have, as an aside, we have a student、um, in the department who's doing his. A PhD dissertation on some of these inscriptions because it gives you people's names and what they did, and so they would donate, and they would you know have bricks put in to these some of these structures, and so you could see exactly where they were from, maybe you know if they were merchants, what kind of communities and classes were patronizing Buddhism at this time period. It's really interesting. It's funny. I think we have a similar system going on with some of the new buildings here on campus. Yes, right. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, that's all the time we have for today, Keely. Thank you for being with us to talk about the Buddha. This has been another episode of Fifteen Minute History. We'll see you next time. You can find a transcript of this episode, along with supplemental documents, suggestions for further reading, and correlations to this Texas and national educational standards for history and geography on our website, blogs.utexas.edu/15minutehistory. That's the numerals one five minute history. You can also find a link to suggest topics for upcoming episodes. The University of Texas at Austin is a free speech campus. Opinions and viewpoints expressed in episodes of Fifteen Minute History do not represent the official position of the University of Texas or of any of its colleges or departments. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.